right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, we have we don't have a whole lot of time, so I want to make sure that we get to cover all our material. Um, so you notice this classroom is set up a little differently. Um, feel free to draw on the paper, play with the Play-Doh, eat candy, whatever you need to do. Um, I figure I can't have a class about celebrating differences unless I acknowledge that we're all different learners and some of us need to keep our hands busy while we listen. So uh, you're not going to bother me if you're doodling or doing different things. Um, that's perfectly fine. I have to do that when I listen as well. So I'm excited to have all of you in here. Um, this is one of my favorite classes to teach um, just because I think it's uh, something that I strive to do better uh, in and acknowledging people's differences and actually valuing them uh, instead of the similarities that I find with them. I'm going to try really hard not to break this. I've never had recorded like this, so I'm going to try not to walk too much, but uh, just bear with me on that. So um, we all have a lot of similarities that we share, right? Um, particularly here in the South, we share a lot of cultural similarities. What are some that you can think of? Some things we have in common. It's hot. It's hot. We all sweat a lot during the summer. Fried food, that's kind of something that generally we all at least like to eat every now and then. What about football? Right? We're bigger college football fans here than other places in the country. So we have these kind of cultural similarities. Um, but we also share um, our faith, too, right? And that is huge, this, this commonality that we have with, with our faith. Um, and that's something that I love about the church is that it doesn't matter where you go in the world. If you find the church, you found home. You know, I've experienced this firsthand that it just really makes the world seem much smaller when you can find people, even if they speak a different language. You know that commonality of faith is there with them. And that's a beautiful thing. And I know that um, God intentionally designed it that way so that we could feel that home and feel that connection with people. But we also have a lot of differences with people. Um, something I think is interesting is that we are all very quick to find our commonalities with people first, right? We're like, oh, we have a connection with that person. We've got this, this, and this in common. We graduated from the same school. And we make those connections, those bonds, based on those commonalities. But we have a harder time finding kind of a bond with each other when we have differences, right? But I think, and I think that all of you would agree too, that our relationships are much, much deeper when we can value the differences that we see in each other. That we can really see how someone who's completely opposite of me or thinks in such a weird way is very valuable to solving different problems and helping me grow, right? So we can be so good at, at identifying these similarities in our church, in, the, in the, our communities, at our work, and particularly in our marriages. We're really good at when we first meet, what, usually it's what that draws us together. Think shared interests. We enjoy doing some things together. And you get married and what happens? Whoa. <laughs> who, who did I marry? You know, it's all of a sudden. <laughs> my husband's right here, so I can say this. It's, yes, we, and we do. But we find all of a sudden now that we're living in these close quarters with, with one another, all these differences in the way we do things start popping up, right? And sometimes we look at those differences in that other person as there's something wrong with them, not the way I'm looking at them. So one thing that's funny to me is, and I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure we're all guilty of 
certain aspects of this is my husband is lovingly loading the dishwasher. And I come in, and what do, you, what do we do? Ah, that doesn't go there. You're doing it wrong. Why did you put that on that shelf, and why did you? And then you have this, I mean, right? Ladies, do we not do this? You're folding that towel wrong. You're folding it wrong. You're doing it wrong. There's something wrong with you, wrong with the way you do things. Not the expectations that I've usually silently put on you, right? Because they're supposed to be there next to us when we load the dishes so they know exactly the right way to do it. But how, how, how inconsiderate, how unfair of us to expect them to meet our expectations when they're doing something good. They're washing dishes. They're trying to fold the laundry, and we sit here and we criticize the way they're doing it. And a lot of times, maybe sometimes it does matter. Maybe crystal will break if you do this. But a lot of times, it is, if we really are honest with each other, it is preference. It is just the way we like to do it because we've always done it that way. Our mother did it that way. Our grandmother did it. That is the way it should be done. And so sometimes if we can take a step back from that, we can really see that the different ways that people do things maybe just aren't that bad. Maybe they teach us something about ourselves, or maybe they teach us really a new and better way to do something. And we have to be able to... Um, acknowledge those and celebrate those in each other. So I want to talk a little bit quickly about kind of essentially what are these differences. And so this is a little bit about personality theory. I could talk about uh, the Myers-Briggs type indicator all day long. Um, It's a great assessment tool. It's based off of a psychologist named Carl Jung. Any counselors or mental health, anybody familiar with the MBTI in here? Some? A few? Okay. And so what it really does is it, it, Carl Jung had this idea that in every waking moment that we, that we are functioning, that we are kind of going between taking in information and making decisions about that information on our internal worlds and our external worlds, right? So every single moment that you are awake, you are kind of going between this. We're taking in information, and then you're also making these decisions about this, this information based on like your internal world, how, to, how it affects your emotions, attitudes, beliefs, and also how it affects your external world as well. So that's kind of like what he based this off of and what those differences are in the way that each person does them. So he introduced um, uh, these just different, these different concepts. And the first one is introversion versus extroversion. So when we think about introverts, what do we generally think about? Do, do, does anybody in here know that they're an introvert or self-identify as an introvert? Wow. You can't ask the introverts this because they're either like this or I'm not raising my hand, you know? So what about extroverts? How many of us in here know that we're extroverts or like feel that energy when we're with people? Wow. Okay, one, we have some spouses looking at the other like, oh, that's you, that's you. So with introverts, we usually think what? When we think about, oh, that person is, is introverted. Quiet. Quiet. Yeah. What else? Introvert. Shy. Shy. Yes. Yep. What else? <coughs> or as an introvert, what have you been told before about yourself that people think of you? We don't like people. We don't like people. You must hate people. I never see you talking to people. Mm-hmm. Self-reliant. Self-reliant, yeah, that's a good one. So I've heard um, before, um, antisocial. Um, let's see, what else? 
stuck up. A lot of time introverts um, come across as stuck up because they're not, they walk into a room and they kind of find one or two people they know and they don't greet people they maybe pass right by. And so the, the misconception is, oh, they're just really stuck up. Well, really what it is is they found their anchor in that room and they're like, I need to get to that person because they're the only one I know in here. When we think about extroverts, what do you think about? Outgoing. Outgoing, yes. Life of the party. Life of the party, or yes. Center of the party. Center of the party, and they love it. Yes. Yes, that's right. So we live in, um, culturally, we live in the U.S., and extroverts um, are viewed more positively than introverts. This is just culturally. They're seen as more fun, life of the party, more outgoing, friendlier. Um, and so that's, that is something that introverts kind of have to battle, that we are fun and outgoing, and, but we just do it in a different way. Um, so there's the, the kind of the difference between I and E in our perception, but really what it means, introversion really is about how someone charges their batteries. So they live in this internal world. It doesn't mean they don't maybe like parties, but it means that as soon as they walk through that door, that battery starts to go down like this. It's like their stopwatch starts and they've got a certain amount of time or a certain amount of num number of words that they can say at this party before they are done. <laughs> They've got to go home. They need to go sit in the car. They need to go hang out in the bathroom for a while. Something to get away from people so they can kind of internally reflect again. So they can kind of start to build back that energy again. Extra extroverts. Totally different. They get energy from being with people. They love it. It doesn't mean they don't get tired of being around people sometimes, but they really gain that energy. They can walk into the room and they see this energy going on and their battery is like, yeah, oh yeah. And it climbs and climbs and climbs. And the more interaction they get with people, the higher that, that charge goes in their battery. Um, and so what depletes an extrovert's energy is what? What would you think it is? Loneliness. Loneliness. Yes. Isolation. You put an extrovert in a cubicle where they can't make eye contact with anybody else in the office, you will kill them. You know, you'll see them like popping up above it like, hey, what's going on? Because they need that connection with people in order to, to, feel in, to feel energy. So introverts are kind of thought to be more of think, talk, think. If they're going to talk about something, they first have to think about it. That's why like in classes a lot of times we ask questions, we'll throw a question out there. If you don't answer within two or three seconds, we're moving on. Well, the extroverts might jump in real quick, but the introverts are going, okay, this question. And they start to like process how they're going to say it. Well, then the person's already moved on. So unfortunately, a lot of times we don't even give a voice to introverts because we're so quick to move on to the next thing. So extroverts are, are more of the talk, think, talk. Now, it doesn't mean that they are just rambling nonsense, but it means that they have to externalize what they're thinking they kind of throw it out there, and then they come back in and go, I just said all of this, and they process what they just said, and then they kind of redefine and kind of refine what it is they're really wanting to say, and then they talk again. Does that make sense? Introverts are more think, talk, think. Extroverts are more talk, talk, think, talk. The next one is, uh, is a perception function, and this is sensing or in intuition. So the way, um, kind of the best way to think about this is this is how we are taking in our information in the world around us. So sensors are more about the feeling things, touching things, seeing things, tasting things. Um, a really good smelling things 
A really good example of this is I was in a class one time and the prisoner stood in front of the class and they'd separated them into sensors and, and intuitives. And they said, I want you to describe this. Take these to your groups and describe this. And she was holding two identical apples. So the groups took them. Well, the sensors came back and they had this very like good laid out board and they were describing this apple. So they labeled it apple. They also did taste uh, sweet shiny, red, firm, um, delicious. A lot of times sensors will come back with their apple. There's a bite out of the apple. Someone had to verify that it did in fact taste sweet. Um, and so they're very factual, right? So they're looking at this apple, you know, it has the brown uh, kind of thing coming out of the top, maybe it has a leaf on it. The, for intuitives, it's a much bigger picture. So sensors tend to look at what is and intuitives look at what could be, okay? So this, in the same group, intuitives come back with, <clears throat> they may have started with, it's, it's an apple, red, ooh, apple pie, ooh, fall time, ooh, Thanksgiving, ooh, um, reminds me of peaches because this one time I was bobbing for apples and there was actually a peach in there. And they like will come back with the most random and the sensors are over here going, what in the world? You totally got a different assignment than we did. There is no way you got the same assignment as we did. Okay? And this is kind of the same thing, too, when you ask someone, uh, you ask a censor, how many people were there at, the, at the, the seminar? There was, I know that 30 of them registered, 30 people registered. There were 30 people there, maybe 32. You ask an intuitive, oh, I don't know, there are people kind of coming and going. There were probably a couple hundred Right? So they, sometimes like, they don't even recognize that they've seen the same person three or four times because they don't really look at details as much. It's more about like the coming and the flow and everything's moving. And it's like, seemed like there were a couple hundred people. must have been. And so a lot of times intuitives will be by sensors. And unfortunately for intuitive children, this happens a lot too. They will be accused of lying a lot because their perception of reality is very, very different than what a sensing parent will see. A sensing parent sees the facts. They also draw from historical knowledge of what has been, and they use that to, to solve problems. While intuitives are over here thinking more of like theories, what could be. And so a lot of times an intuitive child in their head will come up with four different scenarios of what could have happened when that vase broke. By the time they're asked by their parent, they don't remember which one was true. And so as a parent, you have to really, of course, you don't want to encourage lying, but you really have to be able to identify that that is a real struggle for intuitive children. They have this crazy imagination. A lot of times they have a hard time remembering exactly what it was that happened. And so you have to be very careful in how you're processing that and punishing behavior that should be punished, but also kind of helping them understand that it is important to remember these things and to be factual in the way you report things that happen. The judging function. This is subjective or objective. So when we think of like, oh, they're being so subjective. What do we think of? That, that person is so subjective. What are some words that we identify with that? Emotional. I'll throw that out there. It's not based on facts. Women, a lot of times, are, she's just really subjective about it. She isn't basing any of that on facts. And we think of objective, someone is basing something off of very factual, true, false things. 
well, this isn't really what it means that subjective and objective in this sense mean that a thinking person, T and F is what that stands for. So thinking people tend to be more objective, meaning that if they come across a problem, they look at that problem as the object of their attention. Okay? So it's, it's not necessarily a relational thing for them. It's, I need to fix this problem for the good of everyone, but first I need to fix this problem. And if I run over a few people and hurt some people in the process, I'll come back around and make sure those relationships are okay. But right now, the object of all of my focus is fixing this problem. In America, which gender do you think makes up 75% of T's? You only have two options. Which gender makes up 75% of the T's, the thinking, this object, something is men? men. Yeah. Yes. Men make up 75% of these object kind of thinking personalities, meaning that it's a great thing. In business, in families even, they see something that needs to be fixed. They put their whole focus on fixing that problem. Yeah, so, so for the F stands for feeling, all right? So automatically we kind of think what? Women. Right, yes, feeling and female. We automatically stick those together. And feelers are more subjective, meaning that it doesn't mean they're, they're illogical or emotional. It means that they are looking at a problem as the subject of their attention. The whole, everything involved is, is part of their attention, meaning the relationships, the nuances that go on, everything. So a thinker will put the problem over there in order to get a good look at it to fix it. The, the feeler will put themselves in the problem to fix it, right? The thinker's not on the car. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, it, exactly. So it's, it's very hard. And who do you think makes up 75% of the feelers in the U.S.? Women. Women. Right. So automatically, though, even though that is a pretty high percentage, you have 25% of feelers are men. Can you imagine how hard that is for feeling men? in this culture that says that you should be this, 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 and this, and these expectations that even women put on men to be this, this, and this, and they're not. And then you have 25% of women who are thinkers. And imagine culturally what that, that means for, for those 25%. Oh, but you're supposed to be this, this, and this. You're supposed to solve problems and be this way, and you're not. Huh, I have friends over here. Trying to figure you out is a little bit more than I'm willing to get involved in. Right? So... It's, it's, it's a very important thing to understand in the way we just approach problems, right? So the, the uh, perception, the perceiving functions are how we're taking in information, what we're using, relying on. The thinking or feeling is how we are internally processing this information. And then the last one is the judging or perceiving function. And this is our, the final, we have taken it in, we have processed it, and now we are going to do something with it. Judging um, personalities enjoy closure. They've, done, they've taken it in, they've processed it, either externally or internally, and now they're going to make a decision about it and move on. Judging uh, personalities typically, well, actually, how many of you have one planner in here? Like a scheduler, a schedule book, calendar? One? How many of you have two? Here's some on the front. Yeah, come on. Two? Three? Okay, two. So some people, so they enjoy that. Some people think about a planner and it's like, oh, the sticky notes around the house kind of randomly, that doesn't count as a planner? No. 
It doesn't, right? So the P's are perceiving, right? So this means that they are very open-ended, okay? So we like to think of judging as this person goes from point A to point B like this in the most logical way, right? A perceiver wants to be open to all the possibilities that might come along, so they're going to do this and finally end up here. They'll end up at the same place a lot of times, but they don't want to close off those possible things that could come up um, along the way. Okay, judge, judging tends to be a little, they tend to be a little more black and white, and perceivers are just open to any possibility that comes their, their way. They're more spontaneous, they're more flexible, they are a lot of fun to be around, um, but you can see how just even this part here could cause a lot of problems with uh, someone who thinks being on time, if you're not five minutes early, then you're late. And this person thinks like, man, if you get in before the end of the opening prayer, hey, you're good. You're early, right? And so just even this here comes up to be a big problem when we're communicating and we're getting frustrated with each other. And so how do we see some of these differences? Um, oh, really quick, just nature versus nurture. Y'all are all heard of this. Like, which one is it? Um, it really is both. Um, we are given um, a specific personality um, by God at birth. Um, one way I've heard of this um, is that a, a, a family that I know had their first daughter. Um, when the girl was old enough to hold her head up kind of on her own, she's a couple months old, um, he throws her up in the air, like lets go of her. She spreads her arms out, laughs, loves it. It was the best feeling she was flying. The dad's like, <laughs> I've got this dad thing down. Like, I found something my daughter loves to do. They have their second daughter a couple years later. Around that same time, he's like, I know what she'll like. He throws her up in the air, and she curls into a ball and starts screaming and, can't, and will not calm down. She was terrified. And seeing these two women as adults, one of them is a very extroverted, outgoing, um, open option, whatever, take life by the horns kind of person. The other one is incredibly introverted very orderly in the way she conducts herself in her life. And so you can kind of see how that, um, just in, in who they were, that that was something that was even expressed at birth. Um, so it's not necessarily nature versus nurture, it's nature and nur nurture. Um, because whatever personality or whatever traits that you're given at birth, nurturing either helps that or hinders that along life. Um, so we see a lot of um, difficulties come up uh, just based on the first couple of years of life, what happens um, to a child. So what are some of the differences that you can see in a nuclear family with this? Any experiences that you have either with your children, with your parents, um, with siblings, differences that you've seen, any that you can think of? The end, when you were talking about the end child that can be it's confusing to listen to them. Yes, I it is. Ex, and I have an end child and listening to them, I'm like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> um, so I made a big note and just wrote his name on yeah. there just to remind me because when he tells me a story, I'm like, did this happen today? Was it last year? I don't know. Did you dream it? Did right. you hear about right. it? He never right. Knew. Exactly. So, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> and that, that is a very difficult one because we see like how that could affect family communication. We see how work, how in work, I mean, who would you want doing your taxes or any sort of finances? I would want an S, right? Because 
And N might get like distracted by something that's like over there and like, ooh, numbers, and they end up drawing like number animals or something and creating a story over to the side. Meanwhile, the S is like done with your taxes, you know, on time, you know, two days ago. So you can see kind of how that difference can affect a large kind of just area in life. Um, how do you see some of these differences in the church family, kind of our spiritual differences? We can see how some personality differences are expressed more in kind of a spiritual gifts type um, type way. Some people are just more outspoken leaders. Mm-hmm. Yep. And some, unfortunately, are, I'll say, leaders behind the scenes. They lead with their actions. Yes, They're absolutely. They're not outspoken. They don't want to be outspoken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes those might tend to be introverted. They have very strong, passionate feelings about things, but they're not going to be the first ones to pop up and say, oh, yeah, we need to blah, 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 blah. They lead by their actions. What else? Any others? I, th- I think of um, prayer warriors, um, some people who are just very good at um, being in touch with, um, this usually tends to be feelers, who are very good at not only being able to understand kind of their thoughts and feelings that they want to express to the Lord, but they're also very sensitive to the needs of others. T's sometimes kind of breeze on by that, and it's definitely not an excuse, but it's something that happens, unfortunately, is they're not seeing that person over kind of standing aside looking upset. And so they don't approach that person or say, hey, can I pray, pray for something for you? What else? The view of worship. Mm-hmm, definitely. Being on the one hand just focused on doing what we're supposed to be doing, and the others engaging uh, their emotions. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that's definitely um, expressed in, in, like you said, a variety of different ways. Worship, uh, the way we interact with each other. Um, so why would God create us as relational beings but make us so different from one another? He could have made us all the same. We're all very similar. Why, why didn't he? You know, I, I believe that, you know, we are all very intentionally created. You know, you can't look at the human brain or the human body and not see that there's a lot of intention, um, that every single thing is there for a reason. Um, but our human nature is to not accept the differences we see in others. We would normally accept the commonalities. Right? So we kind of jump to this like, oh, I find that clique of people that think like me enjoy the things that I do, but that other group, they don't really kind of think the way I do, so I'll just stay with my group here and never stretch myself to understand why they do things the way they do over there. Um, and we see this not only in church, but I mean, like I said at the beginning, how often do we see that in our marriages? You marry someone and you're like, whoa, how did that happen? How did I not see that stuff before? Um, before I got married, I had this very clear understanding that marriage was really going to show me how selfish I really am um, and that that was something I would have to work on every day and it does because all of a sudden this person you're living with 24-7 sees everything the good, the bad, the happy days the bad days and they really get to see how you're processing life because a lot of times you're processing life with them you're kind of giving them feedback on things and sometimes it gets ugly Um, So I want to talk, transition from that to communication. Um, I have a quick video. Hopefully not too many of you have seen this. Let me know if y'all can hear. It's just 
pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most, but I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Exaggeration of something we see pretty often, right? In relationships. Brought up something, and when she brings it up, I'm immediately going to try and fix the problem. Yes. You brought it up to me; it's a problem. Right, and and that that's a beautiful thing too. I mean, how often are there like if we really do listen, these fixers in our lives really do sometimes they really can provide some really good perspective, but sometimes women need what or Someone, the other person in the relationship needs what first? A hug. Just a hug. Just a hug. Or, or what else? Just listen. It's not, that, it's not that the way you were going to fix it or what you are trying to suggest is not incredibly valuable and useful. It's just that that maybe needs to be the second step instead of the first. And as, I mean, because typically that is a male-female difference, Women need to be a little bit more sometimes verbal in what we do want. Because sometimes we'll approach it with, I just got this problem and I don't know what to do. And then we lay into this thing and then we're mad when they tell us something to do. Maybe it's, I've got this problem, I'm not sure, can I bounce this off of you? I just need you to listen first, right? And tell them. Because men tend to think a little more linearly, a little bit more like, this is an object, I'm fixing this. So we just need to be a little bit more verbal and like, this is the path we're taking right now. I need you to first listen. I need someone to listen. I need a hug. Tell them what you want. It's not fair to say, like, just guess. <laughs> guess if I want you to fix this or if I want a hug. This will be fun. Because it never ends up being fun. Right? And so for men, sometimes we do. Sometimes men just have to say, I know how to fix this problem. I really do. I could tell you right now how to fix it and your problems will go away. But this is obviously not what she wants right now. First, she needs to know that I hear her. Okay? Um, and so we talk about communication and like different types of, of communication, verbal communication, body language, our nonverbal communication, um, and the different types of communication. There are really a lot. I don't know if any of you have 
kind of study leadership or anything like that, but there's like indirect and direct communication. And this is also a very big difference we see between men and women. Men tend to be more direct communicators. Sometimes women kind of talk around the issue and they kind of come up because they're wanting you to understand the whole idea before we move forward. So a, a, um, an example of direct communication would be, I don't want to cook tonight, I want to go out. That is very direct that your husband or your wife has no, there is no what is she talking about. I don't want to cook tonight, I want to go out. That's pretty clear. Indirect communication might look like, oh, I can't think of anything to make for dinner. I just don't know. I cooked like the last three nights. I just don't know what to make. And so there are so many different ways you could go with that. When you're really thinking, a lot of times we already have in our minds what we want. I just rather would go out or order in. Or we kind of go, I just I don't know what to cook and kind of leave it open. Meanwhile, husbands are kind of going like, what is she want? Is she wanting me to cook? Does she not want to eat at all tonight? I'm starving. What's the deal? Let's move this along, right? So, and, and we use direct and indirect communication all the time in the way we communicate with each other. Um, there's a lot of other ones, uh, kind of linear, circular communication. Uh, we're not going to go through all of them. The last one, I, the one I do want to focus on is um, kind of this rational or emotive communication because we see this more rational uh, types of communication coming from thinkers more frequently. Um, and so that's very factual, very, um, they see a child who isn't doing well in school, their statement is going to be, it makes sense that this child is not doing well in school because he needs better nutrition at home. It's pretty factual. More emotive, kind of emotionally driven communication would be someone saying, I don't know how anybody could send a child to school without food. So they're really kind of expressing the same concern over this child, but you can see how one is like, well, like, Factually, it makes sense. Like, we know through research that this child's not going to do well if their nutrition is not well, good at home. They're coming, home, coming to school starved. And the other one is like, how could someone do that to a child? And so just kind of these discrepancies in the way that we're verbalizing things to people make a difference in the way that we're heard. Um, so it's also important to, to understand that we learn a lot of our communication styles during childhood. Um, so kind of thinking back with the way you heard your parents communicate with each other, um, but also being aware of how you're communicating in front of your children. Are you expressing what you do want instead of what you don't want? Um, are you um, being clear when there is miscommunication about what's going on? Um, so all communication is learned, um, and so just being conscious of what you're teaching other people um, about the way you do that. Uh, conflict resolution. Um, I don't like to use conflict resolution. I like to use conflict management. I think with conflict resolution, we have this kind of idea that we can resolve the conflict in our life. We cannot. Conflict will always be there. It might spike at different times. We might have more um, episodes of conflict at different times in our lives. But it's really about learning how to manage the conflict that comes into our lives uh, instead of trying to put closure on it and move away from it and never have it again because that's very unrealistic. Um, I want to... Give a few ways to fight fair. Ten ways that we can fight fair in our marriages. Uh, so you can write these down. I meant to print them out. Um, when we're faced with conflict, because it's going to happen, and I think sometimes in our marriages we are even more real um, with the way we handle conflict because that person is still going to love us tomorrow, and so we kind of let them see that uglier side of us sometimes. Um, 
before you go into a fight, hopefully it's just a disagreement, um, with your spouse, know your own feelings. Uh, remember that anger, when you approach something, anger is always, always, always a secondary emotion. There is something underneath it. Always. Whether it's feelings of betrayal, hurt, fear. Anger is always a secondary emotion. So before you enter into that disagreement with your spouse and you feel angry, identify what's underneath that first because it'll give you a clear, under, a clear way of approaching the problem. You know, you feel angry, but it's because I felt hurt that you did this. Okay? Make it private. Um, this doesn't really matter who it's with. If it's someone in your life, that's good too. But especially in marriage, make it private. My only caveat to this would be um, make sure that uh, for, for couples that have children, if, you, if there is a disagreement that you can have in front of your children, that will be appropriate. Um, and not too heated, let them see you disagree so that you can start to teach them how to have conflict in life without it turning into a screaming match, without uh, calling people names, because they're going to learn that other places. So let them see you handle small um, disagreements in a healthy way. Keep it current. I'm a lady, so I can say this. Ladies, I have a terrible memory, except when it comes to things that I want to bring up in a fight from like two months ago. And then I'm like really good at remembering all the details. So if it happened two months ago, it's not fair for me to bring it up here. Well, you did this again that other time. Well, I should have brought it up with you then. Not waiting two weeks or two months to bring it up now. So it needs to be current of what's going on now. Don't beat around the bush. It's kind of that direct communication saying um, exactly what it is that's going on. Don't assume that your spouse is going to pick up on what you're meaning or read between the lines. Avoid character assassination. Name calling always hurts. Um, remain civil. You, re you may uh, resolve the conflict, but you can leave scars um, that will last the rest of your relationship. And so keeping that in mind that in the heat of the moment, you may want to say things um, and you can apologize for them later, but the scar will always be there. Um, be kind. I think sometimes we treat strangers or the cashier at the grocery store way nicer than we treat our spouses. Um, and so just kind of remembering that this should be the person in your life that you're treating with the most kindness. Um, don't major in the minors. Um, I do, uh, in counseling, but also in my own life, I do a lot of scaling on 1 to 10. I'm upset about something. I'll go, okay, right now I'm feeling like this is an 8, 10 being the worst. This is 8 for me right now. Next week, when I'm not so angry about it, what would it be? Well, a three. When all this other stuff isn't going on, okay. A month from now, it would still be a three. It doesn't mean you avoid the conflict, but kind of gaining perspective on, in the moment, this seems, I'm so mad about this. But next week, eh, not so bad. And so approach it with maybe the energy of a three or a four instead of way up here at an eight or a nine. Um, don't go into overtime. Set a time limit. Take a break if it gets too long. Do something fun together. Um, sometimes when we get tired of being in conflict, we kind of tend to regress into some behaviors that we shouldn't. Uh, don't underestimate how physical touch can help heal. Um, in counseling, we a lot of times will not, there's a problem, we will not face each other when we talk about a problem because that means the problem is out in front of us, in between us. And the same thing goes for married relationships too when you're having a confrontation now the problem is between you 
But if you're standing side by side, where's the problem when you're talking about it? It's out in front of you. There's nothing in between you. You guys are shoulder to shoulder physically. And you're talking about a problem that can be out here. And so that, just that physical closeness can really help heal um, misunderstanding, hand-holding while you take a walk to solve a problem. Um, even though that might be the last thing you want to do, it can be really helpful in just kind of gearing this, your mind towards, we are a team and we are going to fix this together. Um, so that's all 10, right? I got 10. So now that I've said all these don'ts, I'm going to tell you to stop using that word. Um, I went on to communion. Uh, don't keep using don't. Um, instead of saying what you don't want, say what you want. I don't like it when you do this, this, and this. So what's that person going to be thinking about? It's like telling you guys, don't think about ice cream, don't think about ice cream, don't think about ice cream. What are y'all thinking about? Yes. So instead of saying, don't do this and this, I don't want you to do this, I don't want you to do that, tell them what you want. I really like it when you do this. I, would, I really want to see how you can help me more around the house. I really want to see how we could fix this. So using more positive, framing senses in positive ways um, can really help. Um, listen and tell when you, uh, what you've heard. So sometimes I can be in a conversation with my husband and think that I, like, oh, I nailed that. I really expressed exactly what I wanted him to hear. And he'll reflect it back to me and I'm like, were you not just listening to what I said? And he's really trying to understand better, but the way I expressed it was he just did not hear it that way. And so with him kind of reflecting that back, he's clearing up that misunderstanding so I can say, well, no, that isn't what I meant. Let me be clear. And you work on that until you find that clarity. Okay? You don't assume that the other person understands what you mean. Um, and then finally, um, celebrating your differences in, in communion with one another. Um, and a lot of the things that we've talked about just in marriage can apply to, to the way that we commune with each other in Christ. Um, a lot of our personality differences... Um, I think this sheet is in y'all's handout, but uh, just a couple of the scriptures um, on Romans 12. It says, so in Christ we who are many from one body and each member belongs to the other. And then in verse 10 it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Um, Ecclesiastes, it, it says, essentially those who toil for themselves lead meaningless and difficult lives. We were created to exist in communion with other believers. Um, and so just because we're different doesn't give us the right to um, devalue or avoid other believers. And then finally, we'll wrap up. Navigating your differences. And this is kind of how we all bring it together, these differences that we see in our community, our communion with one another, our conflict, our communication. We have to believe that each person has talents or gifts to share. We have to. If we don't, then we're not going to get anywhere in our communication with each other. Um, we have to remember that I can only change myself. You cannot change other people, as hard as you might try. Um, be open to thinking, acting, and feeling in a way that allows the gifts of others to be shared. Some, sometimes very strong personalities will just move forward with what they think the group wants without ever checking in with maybe someone who has an idea but is not as forceful. So make sure that you're um, letting those, those types of atmospheres take place Never stop examining why you do things uh, and what keeps you from exploring new ways. Sometimes we get older and we get stuck in our ways. Sometimes we're younger and we're stuck in our ways and we still don't want to change. Um, assume the best in others. I think this is some of the, just the best advice, and I try to rem remind myself all the time, if I assumed the best in others, I would let a lot of stuff go 
that I'm perceiving that really isn't true? And if I really do need clarification whether or not that person really meant that, why am I not asking? Why am I assuming that they meant this when all it takes is some clarification? Um, and then lastly, there's a couple of reflection questions um, and then an activity, and that's all in your book. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes. It's not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize and accept and celebrate those differences. So I think sometimes it's, it's not the fact that we're all different. It's just the fact that we won't look at those as a positive thing. So any comments as we wrap up? No, we kind of had to breeze, like, go really quick through that. But any thoughts or questions? No? Okay. Awesome. Thank y'all.